Welcome to the Novice No Longer Podcast, episode 25. Coming up, how do you go from programming the first Crash Bandicoot games to reinventing email and the way people interact with their messages? I talk to Dave Baguette, the owner and founder of Inky, which is an iPhone and Windows and Mac application that is changing the way that people think about email. But first, I want to tell you a little bit about how I hired a staff of writers to write content for the blog for Trip Expert. As many of my loyal listeners will know, I just recently launched Trip Expert and I am so, 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 so excited about it. And just to give you guys, if you haven't heard of it, a brief overview, we are like Rotten Tomatoes or Metacritic, but for hotels. So instead of all those user reviews, the terrible, terrible user reviews that you find on TripAdvisor, what we do is we have about 20 expert sources that we pull from. And these are established names. So it's like Fromers, it's Lonely Planet, New York Times, Travel and Leisure, all of these great sources. We pull them all in and we we show them all in one place. So if you're looking for a best hotel, you can go onto that hotel's page and you can see little snippets of the reviews, just like you would on Rotten Tomatoes for movies. If there's a tip, like maybe they say book above the 13th floor uh, for the best view, we will show that to you and that way you know it. And best of all, we have uh, the Trip Expert score, which ranks each hotel on a scale of 0 to 100. Trip Expert is only going to show hotels that score higher than a 60, so anything on there is quality stuff. And we give that information to other hotel booking systems. So you can be you can benefit from Trip Expert by going on to our website and seeing all the stuff, or we're going to be in a bunch of different uh, hotel ranking systems and just improving hotel ranking all over the web. So it's really really exciting, and I co-founded this with my friend Andrew. And one of my responsibilities, as I mentioned before, was running the blog, and this is because creating some sort of regular content is just vital when you are an internet business. You want to be creating things that are valuable to people and it's going to become content that if people are searching, it's going to it's going to show up in the search results. It's also going to show that you know what you're talking about in the space. You're providing value so people are going to like you more. And there's a lot of great reasons to start a blog. Now, traditionally, in a lot of different places, they will go to what is known as word farms. And this is basically where you are able to hire writers for dirt cheap. They make just pennies, low, low, low pennies per word. And you buy entire articles from them. And uh, a lot of times they'll be uh, keyword stuffed and just full of, they're not kind of like SEO optimized rather than content optimized. And what I really wanted to do was something that was really different than this, because I mean, if you're stuffing keywords in there, maybe it'll still help you a little bit. It, It doesn't help you as much now as it did before, but what you what really is going to create lasting value for yourself as a company is just creating valuable content that people want to read. And so we're in a unique position with TripExpert because we are generating data. We are ranking hotels in different cities. So I'm able to take that data and then create articles with it. So what I wanted to do was have a team of writers. So if I created... Um, 
if I needed an article created, I can say, hey, write a story about this. Then they would write it and I could edit it and it would grow and then it would be on the blog. And one of the things I did before launching was talk to my friend John DeFeo, who I had on a guest a while back. I'll leave that uh, in the show notes because it was a really valuable episode. And one of the things that he told me was that it's important uh, I asked him, like, how much content should I be producing? And he said, the amount of content that you produce isn't as important as consistency and showing growth. So don't start out by posting like five new things a day and then slowly realize it's not sustainable, then go down to like two or even one. It's it's a lot better to start with one a week and then grow from there. So that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm posting one new article on our blog each week and I am doing that. I'm making them valuable things based on the data that we are generating with TripExpert. Now, like I said before, a lot of people go to word farms in order to find cheap writers. And that's definitely one method to do it. Another one that people use is going to be sites like Elance or Odesk, which allow you to post a job and have freelancers bid on your job and then hire people. But this time I wanted to try something new because one of on Reddit, uh, one of the subreddits that I subscribe to is freelance writers. It's always interesting to me to see what people are talking about when they're in freelance writers, but a lot of them will talk about trying to find writing jobs online. And that made me intrigued. I decided I wanted to try Reddit as maybe a place to find writers. So what I did is I wrote a post in Reddit subreddit r for hire which is specifically for hiring people who are Reddit members to do tasks. So I posted this job, um, not a lot of money just because it's not something that I can afford right now, but enough to be competitive with a lot of these word farms out there, um, as well as the fact that I have experience writing on the web and where we project uh, trip expert to grow it's definitely a, a growing opportunity and so i posted the job and i got a large number of interest a, a lot and so the way i decided to manage that was like i said i wanted to post once a week but i also wanted to have a bunch of content at launch so everybody who applied for the job they got uh, an assignment of a city and I assigned them I gave them exact instructions for what I wanted for that article which is just the top five hotels in a city writing about them so I sent that assignment out I believe I sent it to five people that first day and of those five people I was really really impressed with three of them one of them was just okay and two of them flaked out the interesting thing that I found was that it was majority of native English speakers, whether they were in the States or they were an expat living somewhere else, all were applying for the job and I got really quality stuff and I was able to work with these writers to kind of grow their craft and really create extremely valuable, well-written content for the blog. And that's what I'm going to keep doing. So if anybody here is looking for employees or looking to hire people and you use websites like Elance or Odesk, definitely try Reddit. Put something in R for hire and see who applies just because I still use Elance and Odesk and I've gotten some amazing people there. It's kind of been a pain sometimes too, but I have had outstanding success with Reddit and R for hire. So I highly recommend if anybody out there needs to hire somebody to give it a try. And on that note, I want to jump right into the interview. Um, Dave, this is one of my favorite conversations that we've had because he has such an interesting, interesting both path and perspective on things. He started out programming for Crash Bandicoot. 
and he did the first two games. And he was the first person to come on besides the, the two original uh, founders of Mad Dogs. And that's just insane. It, it's crazy to me. And so from there, he went on to ITA, uh, which is a software that was for travel for for airlines to get prices. And this was before they had anything there. So he kind of got in there right before it exploded. And it's really interesting what he has to say about that. And now his new venture, which is a software company that is publishing uh, a mail client called Inky, which uses uh, artificial intelligence and learning to make your inbox a better place. So everything that he has to say is super interesting. I thoroughly enjoyed myself. I know that you will too. I I rambled on during this introduction, so I'm going to stop now. We're going to jump right in. So here is Dave Baguette. Enjoy. Dave, hey, how's it going? It's great. It's great to be here, Dan. Yeah, I'm so happy to have you here. And I would just I just mentioned to you in our talk before the show that you have such an interesting work history. And I'm so excited to delve into that because usually the very first question that I ask guests, and I'm, I'm not going to make you an exception, is basically how you got to where you are today. And your story is particularly colorful. Um, can you just briefly tell people your background and how, what kind of path you took to get to where you are today? Sure, it's a long and kind of windy path, so you'll have to tell me to stop when you want me to stop, but I'll give you the capsule summary. I'll try to keep it short. Mm-hmm. I was programming as a little kid. I mean, I I actually started at age seven. Um, my dad got a computer for my mom to use. My mom's a writer, and uh, I immediately took to it and started programming, and I was actually selling programs to her by the time I was 12. So I'm a coder by nature, and I've been that way forever. I can't even remember not knowing how to program. What kind of uh, so, uh, what language was it back then? Actually, very interesting question. Uh, I mean, initially basic because this was the '70s. Mm-hmm. But believe it or not, I actually had a C compiler for for this computer. It was, it was the computer was called a Heathkit, and it was actually one you had to put together from parts. And I actually had a C compiler for that computer as early as 1979. And so I was writing kind of pigeon C code. Uh, you know, when I was ten years old. Yeah. So uh, I, have, I have really long experience in C, C, and the C dialects. Uh, but uh, and then I went to University of Maryland for undergraduate, and I studied computer science, of course, and uh, and I got really interested in linguistics there as well. So I did research in both areas. Um, linguistics actually helped me get into MIT, and I ended up at the AI lab there, the artificial intelligence lab, and studied computational linguistics. Um, got a master's degree there. And also met the two guys who founded Naughty Dog, the game company that made Crash Bandicoot. I loved Crash um, Bandicoot. I, I used to play that all the time on PlayStation. <laughs> yeah, so when I met them, I met Andy first. Andy was the programmer of the two. Jason was more the artist business guy. Um, and when I met Andy, he had already written and sold six games. I mean, this guy is amazing. The pair of them were kind of like, to me, almost like the, the, the Lennon and McCartney of video games. So... I literally met Andy the first day I was at MIT for orientation and just started talking to him, and we were immediately friends. And long story short, they decided they would go take a bunch of money from Universal Studios, who was trying to set up an interactive division, and do a AAA game. AAA meaning, you know, big budget, no holds barred, do the best you can, assemble the best team you can. And so they did that, and they asked me to be the first employee, so I bailed on my Ph.D., 
left MIT and went to work on this uh, on this game, which at the time was called Willy the Wombat, but eventually became known as Crash Bandicoot. And that's that's sort of how I got my start. Uh, and I'd always wanted to write video games, and it was just an incredibly cool experience to do that. Uh, then I took some of the... I actually had a royalty on the game. Royalties are usually not worth anything in games, but if the game sells spectacularly well, it actually does produce some some value. So I actually lucked out, had a royalty, and took some of the money and became a seed investor in another company called ITA. Um, actually, at the time, it was called Internet Travel Agent, but we changed the name because it wasn't really just about the Internet and we weren't a travel agent. But anyway, <laughs> I was the seed investor, and uh, Jeremy Wertheimer had founded that company in around 96, and he had recruited a guy who I was office mates with who was another close friend named Carl DeMarkin to work for him. And they, uh, they basically said, well, we'll let you put in money, but you have to work, too. You've got to write code for us, too. So I sort of reluctantly decided I wouldn't just be an investor. And that was the beginning of kind of a 12-year odyssey of learning a tremendous amount about the travel industry, writing a lot of code, uh, and then, you know, traipsing about around the world, convincing airline executives to use our software. And we also ended up powering a bunch of the intermediaries, like Orbitz and, and Kayak are probably our most well-known ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so that led, that led up to around 2008, and around 2008, I decided that I, I would I would try to do another startup eventually. But at, at that point, I was just sort of thinking about what to do next, and it, it was clear that ITA was going to get sold or something was going to happen with it, some some exit event. So I started thinking about what else to do with my life after that, and uh, ultimately, ITA was in fact sold to Google in 2010. Um, and it closed in 2011. The DOJ had to review the transaction because it was one of the bigger deals Google had done. So that was kind of a year of misery for everybody involved. But I can only imagine. Um, it was really painful. Um, it's like getting a full cavity search every day for a year. <laughs> not <laughs> yeah, fun. That, that does not sound pleasant at all. And the, the really tough thing about it is you don't know if you're acquired or not. You actually don't know if you're part of this other company or not. And there's all these rules about uh, what's called gun jumping, which if you don't know antitrust law, you've probably never heard of this. But even though you're going to be acquired with high probability by this company, you're not allowed to talk to them about anything substantive because that would be gun jumping and that would violate antitrust law. Mm. And so you kind of have to figure out what you're allowed to talk about for a year, you know, yeah, for a year and of like running try to plan with that's a long time. It's a really long time. I mean, and so you don't know how to approach your sales pipeline. You don't know how to approach product development. You just the only thing you can do is try to proceed as though you're not going to be acquired, and then and then you kind of scramble once the deal's closed to figure out how to how to get everything back on the path of assuming you're you're working together. It's it's very weird, um, and and it took and it took a year, like I said. But you know, in the end, they did close the deal, and and that ended up producing a, a big exit for for us. Uh, and and I took some of the money from from then that exit and uh, founded uh, R Code, which makes this new email client called Inky. And uh, we can talk about why I would make an email client. Everybody wants to know why in the world would you make an email client? But basically, the high level is to make finally an email client that actually understands what your mail's about. Yeah, and I definitely have a lot of questions for you about email clients in general, too, and why you would be inspired to do that. But how long did you take after uh, the exit of ITA software to when you kind of launched this new company and launched your first product? And it kind of overlapped in the sense that when we raised money at ITA in 2006, it was a strange deal because we raised $100 million, which is a ridiculous amount of money for a first 
venture raise for for a company. Um, and, and the reason that we did that is because we were in this complicated litigation with one of our previous customers that essentially prevented us from raising money all the time we were growing organically. And so once that was resolved in 2005, then in 2006 it was clear we should just raise some money, and, and we uh, and we did so. Um, and when when you raise that kind of money, one of the things that the investors want to do is they want to optimize everything about the business, uh, and they want to look at all the management roles. And it was really clear to them that we were just overloading ourselves. We had just way too many hats. And so I sort of said, this would be a great time for me to not have five jobs anymore. So and basically, you know, passed off the responsibility of increasingly many jobs uh, until the point where I had one real job left. And then I, then I decided, you know, somewhere around 2008, you know, I'm going to try to start thinking about a new company. I, I kind of felt at that point like if I left ITA, it wouldn't cause the thing to have any problems. You know, before that, if you have five critical jobs and you leave, it's going to leave the company in a lurch. But I really felt like with the, with all the new management that was being brought in and, and everything being done as well, if not better, than I had been doing it, I thought it's fine for me to think about doing something else. So I started thinking about it and really started working in earnest on it in 2009. Um, the team was still really small then, but we, we kind of had a fully formed concept of what, what we wanted to do. And then it really accelerated in 2010 and 2011. Um, by 2012, we thought we had an MVP, minimum viable product, and that's something we can talk about if you're interested. It turns out we didn't really, and it took another year and a half before we really had an MVP. So that's that was a really interesting and somewhat painful lesson for me to learn about uh, the email space. Oh, interesting. Yes, I do have a lot of questions about this. I just made a note right now to come back to it, but I do. I kind of work want to work my way through the story that you just told, just because it's so interesting. And I, I do want to jump back a little bit to Crash Bandicoot. And I, I just had a few questions about this, because it's interesting that you kind of got your start um, at a game. And game development, from what I understand, is a lot different than application development. And also, not just that, a triple-A game, so like big budget. And I mm-hmm. wanted to kind of see, for you, what was that experience like? And did it kind of have... Did it kind of set you up for what you ended up doing with uh, ITA software and what you're doing now, or what was that? How, how did the two experiences relate? Yeah, I mean, you would think that there would be little overlap between game programming and writing an airfare search engine, but actually, if you learned how to program games, most of what that involves. Well, let's think about it in terms of the skills required to write games in the 1990s were very different than the skills required to write games now, first oh, yeah. of all. So, oh, yeah, so one thing that's really happened is, I mean, we made Crash Bandicoot for a million and a half dollars. A AAA game now is like $100 million. Yeah. We, made that with a team, we made that with a team of seven, and there were only two of us programmers on it. The other five were artists. Uh, and now you'll have teams of 400 you know, making a game. So it's, you're blowing it's, my mind right now. This is, that's crazy. Like seven of you and two programmers. Yeah, it was really tough, but we managed to do it. And the point is, you know, that was, you know, it was ballpark the range. I mean, I think Nintendo and they, they were working on Mario 64 at the same time. That was their marquee title. I think they probably had 50, maybe 60. And that was a big team. Um, and so what you've seen is over the last 20 years, I mean, the teams have gotten vastly bigger. The jobs have gotten a lot more specialized 
and the knowledge has gotten a lot more specialized in the sense that, you know, you might have one guy who works on, you know, particle effects, and that's all the person does. And it was much more of a, uh, it was, you had to be more of a general purpose coder in the 90s, and you could be more of a general purpose coder and still write a credible AAA game. Uh, you needed to have assembly language skills, and both Andy and I had done a lot of that in our previous uh, projects. But, uh, and, 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 you know, there again, you'd think there's very little overlap between doing what I did on Crash, which is I wrote the rendering pipeline that, that rendered all the background character, all the background scenes, and uh, did a lot of the tool work. I did the collision detection code so that it would be able to tell when Crash was bumping into a rock or a tree or something. And again, you'd think there would be a little overlap there, but actually, with ITA, the code that I contributed to primarily was in the seed availability system. And that was pretty low level. It was a C++, almost a NoSQL database. And that's what they would call it now. There was no such term then. But it was really an in-memory database. And it was in the same way, you know, we didn't write much assembly language at ITA, but we were writing really low level code that had to be fast. And it still actually mattered back then to, that you made the code really tight and fast. Because I remember, you know, our first versions were running on 200 megahertz processors which we thought were super fast at the time. But, I mean, if you think about it now, your phone's got a 1.2 gigahertz processor in it. Yeah. Now, it's so interesting. I've, I've spoken to a few people that used to program with uh, lower-level languages like assembly, and sometimes they'll miss the kind of power to put things exactly where you want them and do exactly what you want. And do you find yourself... Um, now, with the projects you're working on, kind of wishing you had more control, or do you leave that? To the, are you happy with abstracting that away? When I feel that way, I usually write something in C. So Inky's written predominantly in Python, and Python's a great language for productivity, but it's, I mean, it's a hundred times slower than C. So the good news is that in almost any given program, this wasn't true of, of ITA's code, but in almost any given application program, 99% of it can be slow. I mean, and it's still going to be 100 times faster than it needs to be to be adequate. And the 1% that needs to be fast, you can move that. Historically, we'd move it to assembly. Now it's much more the case that you would move it to C. The reason being that C is almost at the level of assembly. You can't really assign things to specific registers, but it's close to the same level of abstraction. And the really amazing thing that's happened is the processors now are so much more sophisticated sophisticated than they were in the 90s, that now it's much more difficult to outdo the compilers in writing assembly code. You have to take into account all kinds of complicated caching effects. There's things like the processor will do speculative branch predictions, so it'll look at a, an if statement, essentially, and it'll say, well, if it goes this way, this is going to happen, so I'm going to run that part of the pipeline. But if it goes this way, it's going to run that part, and it runs both. I mean, actually... So the processors do a lot more complicated things, and it's much harder to model that in your head when you're writing assembly code. So almost nobody anymore is doing really hand assembly code. I mean, there's a few examples I, I can think of. You know, crypto, the, the ciphers for crypto uh, are done in assembly still. Um, there was an iPhone app recently where it would take frames, like frames, photo frames, really quickly, and I think he wrote a bunch of assembly code tailored to the hardware. But it's... It's mostly the case that if I feel confined by a higher-level language, I'll just write it in C, and it'll be you know, 100 times faster. Mm -hmm. So you, you were on for Grash Bandicoot for the first and the second one, and then you kind of took the royalties from there and invested in ITA software. What, what made you switch? Did you feel like 
the entrepreneurial bug or was it something like the the opportunity came that you just had to take advantage of it? What was your thought process in moving on from games and getting into ITA? It was pretty much the opportunity seemed just staggeringly uh, compelling. I mean, initially I got involved because Carl, who again was my office mate, at the AI lab and a good friend, Carl was kind of the primary programmer that Jeremy brought in. And, you know, I was just curious what he was doing. And I had a little sense of paternalism about it because Carl's not a business guy. And I wanted to just make sure he wasn't doing something that was crazy or, you know, <laughs> so I looked at what he was doing and, and he showed me this prototype and sort of explained the state of the art in the industry, which at the time was, I mean, literally ASCII terminals just text and you'd do a search for let's say LA to New York and you'd get nine answers back all on United you know pretty pretty poor software at the time and you know he had this prototype where it would put up 500 answers and there was this beautiful timeline representation and you know just talking to Jeremy a bit about the numbers you know there were two and a half billion flights a year it just seemed like a wide open space for computer scientists to go after it seemed like there weren't that many computer scientists working in the industry. There were a few at the established companies like Sabre, uh, but just seemed like a really ripe opportunity to apply high-end search technology and algorithms to. And of course, we also had the, the naivete to think that it wouldn't be as hard as ultimately it became. It ended up taking five years there to get to an MVP uh, because the airlines have made the pricing so complicated. But we didn't know that that was going to be, it was going to be so hard. We figured, well, we'll just do some computer science for a year and we'll crack this problem and then we'll be done. <laughs> so really it seemed like a compelling opportunity, the idea that you could make some amount of money, a dollar or 50 cents or something on every airline ticket sold. That seemed pretty compelling and it seemed like it was a wide open opportunity. Yeah. No. what was the original vision for ITA software? And when you said that it was a prototype when you first stepped in, was it like early like days weeks old and then it took five years or what was the original vision and where was it when you came on i think what actually happened was in the in the 96 97 period there was a prototype written jeremy and another guy wrote a prototype and then carl came in and essentially rewrote everything and you know his thing was a prototype in the sense that it didn't it didn't obey all of the airlines rules exactly and it didn't do things like check seat availability correctly, but it wasn't a prototype in that it didn't really work. It did actually work, and it was highly scalable, and it was clear this thing was just, it was going to require a lot more investment, but it wasn't like maybe this won't work. It was clear it was going to work. So, you know, it was a prototype in the standpoint that it needed a lot more investment, but not not in, not in this existential sense of maybe maybe we won't ever get it to work. So... That was, you know, 97, 98, and then it was just a matter of spending several years learning from the airline industry people how this stuff worked. Some of it was written down, some of it was written down correctly, some of it was written down totally wrong, <laughs> and, you know, other stuff just wasn't written down at all. So you'd have to talk to pricing experts in the industry, and, and they would tell you, no, this is what that really is supposed to mean, and... Um, you know, you get into these these really interesting edge cases. Like everybody's familiar with the Saturday stay requirement, right? So you get a lower fare if you stay over a Saturday. The objective being the airline wants to know if you're a business traveler, and they can't just query your bank account directly. So they need a proxy for that. So the Saturday stay is all about 
if you're a business traveler, you're probably not going to want to stay over a Saturday, right? So the airlines made up this Saturday stay fair fence is what they call it. But here's the thing. Suppose that you cross the international date line on Friday night. So you leave Friday and arrive Friday. Did you have a Saturday Saturday stay or not? <laughs> so you get into all these questions where, you know, you have to ask airline experts what the answer is. There's just a million things like that. Uh, so many edge cases. Yeah, I can only imagine. So was was this a software that was running on the airline's computers that somebody works for the airline would be able to look up fares? Or was this more targeted at consumer-facing? And was it always that way or did it change? So that's an interesting question. I think we always initially targeted airlines with the thought that we would provide pricing services for their websites. Because, you know, websites were a new thing. They weren't a new thing like no one had heard of them, but they were certainly a new thing in terms of distribution of airline tickets. And actually, one of the important lessons that I learned, entrepreneurial lessons, was we got in the door at a bunch of these airlines because no one cared a lot about online distribution yet because the volumes were so low. So if you looked at who in the airline was in charge of online ticket distribution through the website, it was fairly junior people, typically. And if and if you look at when we came in and said, we want to provide pricing services for you, they would look at that and say, well, sure, we'll take a chance on these guys in Cambridge because, I mean, we don't sell that many tickets through that channel anyway. If it's a disaster, we'll just, like, turn it off and do something else. Whereas you could imagine, they wouldn't do that with their primary channel, which at that time was human travel agents. But then over the course of the next few years, the channel just exploded, and we ended up a few years later with the majority of the tickets being sold on the airlines going through us, being priced by us. You know, so at that point, it was just a matter of, as long as we don't screw it up, we're going to keep these contracts. And our pricing was volume-based, so we just grew like crazy as a result of this huge seismic shift in the way tickets were distributed. You know, again, a really, a really kind of basic lesson, but one that I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't think about is, how do you get? How does the camel get his nose in the tent? Because that's once the nose is in the tent, you know, then you can sort of build from that position. But it's really hard with a business-to-business deal to get a business to trust you with anything that is valuable. Mm-hmm. And so in that case, it wasn't valuable yet, right? They trusted us because there weren't that many tickets being sold through the internet, so it wasn't that valuable. It didn't matter that much. Interesting. Now, was it the type of thing where because you were a computer science and kind of working in this space, you saw that one day the online ticket sales or the digital stuff was just going to take over to the extent that it did? Or did you kind of just see it more as an opportunity that you wanted in on and then it just went beyond your wildest dreams? Yeah, so I'd love to say that we expected everything that happened and we planned it and we were just geniuses. But in fact, uh, we kind of had the direction right, but certainly not the magnitude. We thought that ticket sales would move to the online world over some period of time. We certainly didn't know the timing of that and how fast it would happen. And I think we would have been surprised by that if we weren't so busy during it. But it was much more rapid than, than one might have expected. Yeah, and you had mentioned that you were in litigation at that point, which kind of prevented you from raising money. Does that mean you guys were spent a large majority of that crazy growth time just scrambling to keep up? Or is that kind of over by then? Or what, would that, what was that process like for you? No, we were, 
were we were scrambling in a bunch of ways. Not so much that we couldn't keep up with the volumes and that we just had to keep adding servers. Although we did, it was more a challenge of building an organization that can support huge amounts of commerce. And so we'd have things like service level agreements where if our stuff fell over, you know, we'd kind of be paying people by the minute, right? Because, you know, if American Airlines can't sell tickets for five minutes, that's going to show up on their quarterly report, right, to Wall Street. So this is a really bad thing. You don't want it to happen. And so building out an organization that could scale to the volumes and also provide really high level of service and service level agreements was a big challenge. And, and the organizational design and the process design that went along with that was, was also a challenge. For me, at least, I felt that those things were pretty hard. Now, speaking of challenges, I want to briefly move into the email field, which is what you're kind of working on now, because I have heard that building an email client and all of the things that go along, the standards that go along with email is incredibly difficult. So how did you first get the idea for Inky and why an email client, to go back to the question before? Yeah, and, and you're right that, I mean, everything you've heard is absolutely right. It's it's incredibly uh, complicated. Maybe not quite as complicated as airfare pricing, but certainly in the same league. Um, and, and the reason that I that I chose that as an area to work in is that I looked at these these kind of ubiquitous technologies or applications that people were using for hours a day, and I and I looked at you know what are the things that billions of people use, and was any of them something that I could make some improvement to? Because I always felt like it was really cool that we could put a game out that millions of people would play. It was really cool that we could make software that millions of people used to buy their airline tickets, and I kind of wanted to do that in a more horizontal, broader kind of sense. Like, was there something bigger than that that could actually have an even bigger impact? And if you look at the things that people spend hours a day on, it's, you know, web search, they use their computer operating system, they use things like Microsoft Office, you know, the Office Suite, um, they'll use a web browser, and, and email, right? And so of all of those things, email seemed like the only one that was tractable at all. And I estimated somewhat incorrectly that it was possible to do a completely new email client stack from scratch with modern 21st century technologies with the idea that the client would actually do machine learning and natural language and understand the contents of the messages. I I, kind of estimated that that would be doable by a startup. And at the end of the day, borderline wasn't doable, but we did it anyway. Uh, we just sort of stuck it out and made it work. And, and that's very similar to IT. I mean, IT wasn't really doable by a startup. We just stuck it out and <laughs> just and, and, got, and got lucky, actually, with, with a few, in a few ways that, uh, that allowed us to continue uh, for the number of years required to get it done, to get it to an MVP. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really felt like, you know, if you ask the average person, hey, do you like your inbox? The answer is like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, it's, it's horrible. And yet... This is such a ubiquitous technology that it needs to be improved. Another thing that I realized is there aren't, you know, the companies that have legitimate MVP mail clients, there aren't that many, and they're all primarily interested in something else. You know, for them, you know, page views are the most important thing, or hardware sales are the most important thing, or search revenue is the most important thing. And I really felt like there was a hole there. There was, a, there was a slot there for a company that would care entirely and, and completely about 
email and messaging and, and nothing else and just focus on that problem. Mm. And I still think that's true. Yeah. Now, I, I'm with my email, I'm a little bit more paranoid than I think most people are. Uh, I, I mainly use the Gmail interface right now. And for the spam folder, I have it set uh, to only hide if unread. And every time I log into my email, if I have a new spam message, I'll check the spam folder and delete it. And the same goes for like Gmail release the new kind of inboxes with promotions, different social things like that. But I think a lot of my fear or there kind of stems from not really understanding um, machine learning and like how far the technology is advanced. So can you talk a little bit about how sure you are that an email is getting categorized correctly when somebody goes to manage their email account? Yeah, and actually, you talked about two different notions of of machine learning. There, one is the estimation of how important or relevant a message is to you, and so a spam filter is kind of a binary determination of whether something is totally irrelevant or not. And the problem with spam filtering is that's a hard filter in the sense that you're afraid something will be put in the spam folder and you'll never see it. Our view of that is more nuanced in the sense that rather than give you a one or a zero number back, you know, true or false, spam or not, we actually give you a rating from one to a hundred and you can sort by that. So the spam isn't hidden, it just sinks to the bottom of that day's email. So if you go into Inky and you can sort by time and, you know, like a typical mail client, you can also select sort by relevance and then you see the spam kind of sinks to the bottom and the more important stuff rises to the top. And that relevance calculation is by no means perfect. You can train it so you can make it smarter, but it's unlikely it'll ever be absolutely perfect. So that's one reason why we like to have that be a soft criterion as opposed to a hard filter. In other words, something you can sort by rather than something you hard filter by. So that's the relevance piece. The categorization into those tabs in Gmail, we have a similar concept called smart views. That's often based on things like, who's the sender? And it's based on analysis of the body of the message in some cases. So, you know, one signal, for example, that we take advantage of is everybody who sends mass mailings has to put an unsubscribe link in because of the Can Spam Act. Mm-hmm. And one of the cool things about Inky is it'll go find that thing and give you a button to unsubscribe so you don't have to go hunting around finding the, the grayed out two-point text at the bottom of the yeah, message. They, they like to hide it. <laughs> they do. Yeah, they do. But, uh, but, of course, you know, you can't really hide from an HTML parser. So, you know, Inky's HTML parser doesn't care that it's tiny and gray. It just sees it as an unsubscribe link and it recognizes, oh yeah, okay, that's an unsubscribe link. So I can either, I can either send a mail to the appropriate place saying unsubscribe or I can go to the right, go to the right website and do it. And, you know, that's obviously a very strong signal that a message is commercial. So there are other signals like that from which you can get a pretty strong reliable sense. And what machine learning is really all about is trying to identify these signals or as they call them features and then running kind of statistical models over these. And it's really an art more than a science. The way you do the statistics is all math and that's science. The way you pick the features and derive them, that's kind of the art. And so, uh, but we think about you know, how can we make this more accurate? And then we also think about what are the real practical limits of accuracy, and then how does that influence the user interface design? You know, so, so if it's something not going to be 100% accurate, you don't really want to make it a hard filter choice. Hmm. 
That's so interesting. Now, you had mentioned earlier that uh, your minimum viable product took a lot longer than expected. I think you said five years, if I'm correct. Now, well, that was, yeah, that was ITA, and I oh, think, ITA. you know, yeah, it's, I mean, but ballpark similar for, for Inky. Now, you had mentioned you can kind of get into that, so I'm, I'm curious, why did it take so long to get the MVP out? And you said that you had one, and then you didn't actually have one. Right, so so we we started with the desktop version partly because I wanted to experiment with a lot of this machine learning stuff, and that was going to be clearly harder to squeeze into a phone kind of context. So we started with the desktop version, and we just put it out there and didn't publicize it. But you know, then we could tell our friends, you know, go try it, and if, you know, people would randomly come across it and try it, and we get some testing from that and feedback, um, and then. It got exposed via Hacker News, and we just got this enormous, you know, like 100,000 people trying it. And I think for the most part, people recognized it as being a mail client, but we got a tremendous amount of feedback like, oh, well, you know, I can't use this because it doesn't handle drafts the way I want. Or, you know, I can't use this because, well, there's like something wrong with attachments. Or, you know, I, you know I'm in Turkey, and it doesn't show Turkish characters properly. <laughs> and so it got just this enormous amount of feedback that showed that you can't just implement the first 80% of a mail client. If anybody uses, I mean, a given person uses maybe 80% of what the mail client does, but everyone uses a different 80%. Mm. And so the problem is that I, I, the analogy I use a lot is, is, is Elon Musk making a car, right? People don't think cars are complicated, really. They think, well, when they're broken, I have to take them in to get fixed. So it's complicated from that standpoint. But they're not thinking about the fact that, you know, cars have a million parts, literally. And every one of those parts has to work properly. It has to have been, you know, not only tested, but also kind of iterated over a multi-year or multi-decade period. And when you're sitting in your car, all you care about is going from point A to point B you're not thinking about all those million parts. All you know is if your car stops, you're going to be really unhappy. Right? And so there are a million parts in a mail client. There's stuff that people don't even know is in there that needs to be there and functioning absolutely perfectly to have any semblance of a normal email client experience. And it's just this, what I like to call fractal complexity to it. You think you're done and then you zoom in and there's just more detail and it just never ends. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, ultimately it, it does end. And I think at the point we're at now, we have a, a really cool, a really cool product in that it's a completely from scratch, ground up, written email client platform that really is MVP and in some ways beyond an MVP. But you know that was 18 months of iteration post our thinking it was pretty close to ready, uh, and you know obviously it's the usual thing you want to have the you want to have the iteration happening with regular users because you want to get their feedback and you want to understand how close you are to product market fit. But the earlier you are in that, the more painful it is because the more harsh the feedback is and the more you feel like, oh, God, this is so disappointing to people that look what they're writing to us. And so I think when I, when I, tell, when I tell entrepreneurs starting out, you know, I tell them you should iterate in public if you can, but you can't let it freak you out and make you upset. And it's very easy for, for that to become an incredibly painful experience. Yeah, I think that's it's very intriguing or interesting what you said about email clients in particular being 
not necessarily well suited for MVP, MVP because the, the concept behind it is you build the minimum thing that can kind of prove the concept of what you're talking about and then you kind of grow based on feedback and what people are doing. But with email clients, you are finding that a lot of people were using the apps and their complaints weren't just complaints, they were deal breakers. And so you kind of, it, you didn't have a minimum viable product because what you had was working, but it, you couldn't actually test it because the other things were kind of clouding people's use and judgment of it. Right. And actually, if you go and, and, and if you look at web browsers, if you go and look at the, the, the bug, bug reports are all open for Chromium. If you look in the bug reports for Chromium, you'll see even now, hundreds and hundreds of bugs that are things like, well, I went to, onto the LinkedIn website and this page looked funny. You know, I went, I went to Yahoo Mail and it didn't work right. And, and so it's not just that there are these general areas that you have to get right. It's that there's specific websites and it has to work with all of them, right? And the same thing is true of mail. We've got, you know, 10 or 20,000 mail servers that people have added Inky accounts for. They're all slightly different. I mean, there's probably, you know, a couple dozen mail server code bases that are common, but there's all, you know, an infinite variety in how they're configured. Um, it's just so, you know, someone can write in and say, well, it's not working for me with Roadrunner. And then we have to go figure out, we don't, you know, I don't have a Roadrunner account, so I don't, so we can contact Roadrunner and try to get an account, a test account, and sometimes they answer and sometimes they don't. But the point is, it's very similar in nature to, to doing a browser where it's got to work with pretty much every web page or it's a deal breaker, right? For the person who cares about the LinkedIn page, if Chromium doesn't work on that page, it's a deal breaker. So very similar, and, and I think it's what makes some of these kinds of applications really hard in practice. Mm-hmm. Now, I, w- I kind of want to go back to the very beginning of Inky. And you had this idea for improving email and building this new client. What was your first step? Did you sit down with code because you have a coding background? Did you start writing down how you wanted to make it different? What was the very, very beginning of this like for you? Actually, the first, the first task really was I made a pretty extensive document describing some improvements one could make to an email client given a blank sheet of paper and also some analysis of the market the size of the market who the players were how and why they were sticky with their customer bases uh i looked at a lot of the academic literature around analysis of text in general and and email specifically and one of the motivations for me to start working on this seriously was that I saw in the academic literature on machine learning and natural language processing this this evolution of accuracy um, that I thought would 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 pretty pretty soon lead to practical applications of this stuff and I think I think that was the correct assessment um, and so I did a bunch of analysis of the the, the research. Uh, as well as the the kind of commercial aspects of the business, and I produced essentially you know a fifty page document um, on you know he, almost like a consultant would do if you asked them to design a business plan for you. It wasn't so much you know here's how we're going to go to market or scale this. It was more here's the context in which you could create a new business, and here's what's hard about it, and here's what's an opportunity, and here's the metrics around the market sizing, and here's how maybe you could charge people, and what the model could be, and um, so speculative, but with an attempt to ground it in in as many facts as I could get. Mm-hmm. 
Now, once you had that and you started building your team, because you said that you had a small team on this, how big was that team and what were people doing? In, in the beginning, it was just me and, and one other person, and, and I had actually know the, our, our first employee, Brian, I actually have known him since literally kindergarten, um, and our our our, uh, our staff meetings were at the uh, the local brew pub uh, <laughs> every week, and we were just literally working independently of each other on our in our houses, and you know as time went on, I, I kind of recruited more people in as I got more confident that we were on the right track and we were actually going to produce something of value. It's never clear whether the value you create is like, you know, 1.01x what you invested or, you know, 10 million x what you invested in the case of something like Google. But it was clear we were creating value that exceeded what we were investing. And so as I developed that confidence, I brought in more people. And uh, I brought in um, one of my operations people from ITA in 2009. Uh, and then I brought in a machine learning person who had, I actually was trying to bone up on the literature um, and Andrew had just had just finished his PhD, and he turned it into a book. And I read his book, and it was just awesome. And I wrote him an email saying, "Your book's really awesome. <laughs> Would you work with us?" <laughs> and you know, eventually he, he did. And so I just sort of built it out opportunistically, like that. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Um, so, do you have any like, what's your kind of vision now? Because you had uh, or vision for the future, not now. Because um, you had the the first version that you were kind of playing with and you learned that it wasn't enough of an MVP really and then you you chugged forward another 18 months of development to get a, a more complete version. Is there anything that's you're still feeling that's lacking that's coming in the future? I mean, I mean there's, there's 10 years of work to be done in this space, I mean, even from where we are. And for us as a company, there are two big challenges and we, and we think about both of them night and day and they have nothing to do with the code. The first challenge is, you know, how do you get massive consumer adoption of something that is ubiquitous, that people are pretty stuck to their existing solution? Um, there's a certain paranoia, as you as you put it, and there's a certain emotional attachment to the existing tools. And actually, ironically, I think when people people complain about their mail clients, but they've developed coping strategies that they understand work with that mail client that they, they've been using. Oh, yeah. And so they're reluctant to switch for that reason. So the big overarching challenge for something like this is, you know, can you and how do you most effectively convince people to give you a shot and how can you turn that into millions and millions of users? Is that even possible and how do you do it? So that's kind of class one problem. Um, the class two problem is, while you're working on that, how do you bridge? So how do you how do you fund the development of this thing that you're essentially going to give away? I mean, you may de facto give it away because you're charging a couple bucks for an app, or you may literally give it away in the sense that it's free. And how do you find other ways to monetize the asset to essentially fund the consumer part of the company? And so we look at things like... Uh, small businesses, what can we do for particular niches of small businesses that would generate some recurring revenue? You know, and, and, and how do we do this while keeping the team small so that we're really lean and efficient, so that those, the costs don't go up so much, that it's hard to generate enough revenue to be on all the time? I think in terms of the vision for the product, I would like to imagine a future where your mail client, whether it's Inky or not, really understands at a fundamental level the vertical the intent, the relevance, um, of, of and, and, and something about who sent it, whether it's a person or an entity, for every mail you receive. And that the 
mail client becomes a much more active participant in this inbox overload triage problem and, and much less of a passive dumb observer, which, which they are now. And, and as part of, part of what you said about that, I think is absolutely true, which is you've also got to figure out how to develop the trust with the users that they believe that this new helper, Inky or whoever, can be trusted to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. It's like having an executive assistant. It's great to have an assistant, but only if you trust the person to not screw everything up, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, definitely. So I think there's an element of that with any any kind of agent kind of technology like this, where you're you're essentially asking people to delegate a very tedious, obnoxious task, but one nonetheless that they feel must be done properly, to a to an autonomous software agent. Now, your answer to that question kind of wound in really nicely to kind of my abstract, more abstract question that I had to wrap all of this up, and that was: Do you see? just the medium of email changing significantly in the next five to 10 years because this technology that you're talking about, and if your email client could know exactly all of these different verticals with your email, we could have something completely different that looks nothing like the system that we have today. Do you see email itself changing in the future? There's no question that it will, and it will start to, it will start to adopt features that you see in social networks, It'll start to encompass things like that, uh, and certainly the, the the smart aspect, the textual understanding aspect, is going to is going to go. Uh, it's it's going to absolutely explode. Certainly in the next ten years, if not the next five years. And the thing that people don't think about with email that's really really powerful is that email is the one communication system that's standardized and federated um, that allows any kind of con- Content to be exchanged. So, so you can send video or uh, images or audio or anything over email, and nobody has the off switch for that. Nobody can. It's not a walled garden. Um, anybody can run a mail server and participate in the mail exchange system. Um, anybody can write a mail client, and it will automatically interoperate with all the servers in the world. And that's incredibly, I think, powerful and incredibly important as the as we've seen the rise of walled gardens. I think. The walled gardens, obviously, they, they solve a lot of problems, you know, in the sense of they're curated often. They're, the control is actually helpful in some ways. Um, but you also always want to have some unfettered, uh, non-centrally controlled communication medium, I think. So I think that, that email is always going to be important uh, because of its ubiquity and because of the, the fundamental freedom around the way it works. It's, it's sort of like the, the messaging that most closely matches the Internet itself. Yeah, I totally, totally agree with you. Uh, and for anybody listening, if you want to try out Inky, because I'm definitely, I, I already downloaded it while you were talking, and I'm going to definitely give it a full-time go now. Uh, you can go to Inky.com, which is I-N-K-Y. And Dave, if anybody listening wants to get in contact with you or has any questions, how can they do that? They can mail me at uh, dmb at inky.com. That's David, Michael, and then B as in boy, at inky.com. Happy to answer emails. Um, a great place to ask me questions is Quora. Uh, I generally answer anything anybody asks me that I have a reasonable answer to. Uh, I'm on Twitter as dmbaggett, B-A-G-G-E-T-T. So those are some ways. And uh, yeah, definitely check out the uh, the Inky iPhone app. It's for iPhone and iPad, and it's 
it's by far our best version so far. I'm, I'm really excited about it. So I hope people will, will give it a shot. Yeah, I definitely think everybody should. And Dave, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing all of this knowledge and your experience with us. It's been fun, Dan. Thanks. there you have it, my interview with Dave Baguette. If you have enjoyed it as much as I have enjoyed it, please log on to iTunes, give me a rating, leave a review. It makes me super happy when I see those, and it also helps other people find the podcast, which is super important for me. So please do that, and until next week, have a good one.